Hey, everybody. I'm Nicholas from LTA. I am pleased to be joined by Clayton Shaw of Spatial Audio, and we're going to dive right into this interview. Hey, Clayton. How's it going, Nicholas? Good to see you again. Yeah, likewise, likewise. Um, so we'll start with the basics, I guess. You know, who are you? Uh, what's Spatial? And what the heck are open baffle speakers? Right. Yeah. Um, well, Clayton Shaw is my name. I've been uh, in the industry a long time since the uh, mid, early to mid 70s. Um, and I was in a variety of different roles, you know, from you know, speaker manufacturing, retailing, uh, pretty much everything, distribution, and so forth. Um, and it's one of those things, like I'm sure you feel the same way. You get the bug, you can't get it out of your system. You know, the very first time I uh, ran into a true high-end system. It was a, a Macintosh vacuum tube um, separate system uh, with a pair of large-scale that you, I don't know if you guys have ever seen this, but it's a three-screen magnaplaner that's gigantic, about six feet tall, about five or six feet wide. And I heard that when I was, you know, a teenager, and that completely blew my mind. Um, and so you know, I think that's where the, the interest level kind of locked in. It's like, okay, this is what I want to do. <clears throat> I don't know in what capacity, but, you know, I was just totally into it. So, um, so the, uh, the speaker interest started even earlier than that, as far as playing around. I did, I wasn't aware of high-end audio, let's say it that way, but I was building speakers when I was like 13, something like that, you know, uh, there was a, back in those days, a Radio Shack was actually a pretty cool place. It was called Allied Radio Shack, and it was a big parts kind of store. So they not only had electronic parts, but they had kits like Dynaco kits, you know, uh, Heath kit, things like that that you could build. Uh, and they had speaker drivers, crossover networks, all kinds of things. So you could walk in there as a consumer and kind of get, dig into the middle of this right away and start building your own gear. And in those days, a lot of people did build their own product or their own audio gear so that was like right in the in the early to mid 70s that's kind of what i just stumbled into so right in our this city i lived in grew up in there was this allied radio shack so i would buy you know every time i had enough money to buy a new driver new woofer whatever you know i would uh would buy what i could buy uh build experiment and my what i was really after was at that time anyway um the sound of, a, of the Alltech Voice of the Theater, which was a, a movie theater speaker that was uh, repackaged, you know, for consumer use and uh, extremely dynamic, really fast, uh, had some issues, but it was a really exciting, real high realism type product. And um, I was trying to copy that, uh, basically, to see if I could do that type of build it kind of, kind of speaker. Uh, and one weird thing that happened is when I was actually trying to build this A7, I didn't have the wherewithal to properly mount a back panel onto the box. This is pretty big, you know. Um, oh yeah, I remember my dad building a speaker that we had in our home. And I mean, the thing was easily three feet wide and mm, maybe five feet tall, you know, yeah. Yeah, this was a little smaller than that, but <laughs> you're right. In those days before acoustic suspension came out in the, you know, from AR, speakers were large. That's the only way you could get bass uh, performance. So anyway, um, I didn't, so I ran this thing for a long time with no back on it, had no idea I was listening to an open baffle speaker. <laughs> really? But it, it did sound actually, you said like 13? 
uh, yeah, that was by the time that was done, it was a little later, but you know, 14, right. 15, whatever. Right. And uh, so I was listening to this open baffle speaker the whole time, had no idea what the benefits were, but um, at that point, but anyway, fast forward, uh, uh, just some, I just happened to know a guy that was a good speaker designer in the 80s that demonstrated a open baffle subwoofer that he had built with uh, two or three, I guess, three 15 inch whoopers. And as soon as I heard that, as far as bass reproduction, I was like that, you know, this is the way to do it. It's so clean and fast where the decay just decays right off. There's no ringing and boxiness and all that. Um, because up to that time, I was building and designing box speakers. So I had already been doing that for a long time, right? And then, uh, so I still designed and built box speakers after that point, which is around, you know, 1987 or something. Um, but I increasingly, I did start doing a lot of testing and research on this open baffle thing. And you got to realize back in those days, it was difficult because the, there really wasn't, you couldn't model anything back in that, that time, but very few people knew anything about it. Um, not that it's rocket science, but you can't just take an off the shelf woofer and get good performance. You really have to design a, a purpose developed woofer for this to, to do it right. Otherwise, but we'll get into that in a second. But if you want to have bass, you've got to, you, you have to have a dipole design woofer. So anyway, uh, so that's, we did a lot of work on that. And a lot of that was experimentation, again, because there really wasn't much to go by in terms of textbooks and, and uh, prior art, let's call it. So uh, in any event, um, and, and I just kept with it. I think that's a lot of my success story is that I just never gave up. And I, when you're in the middle of that, you don't think that way. You don't think if I just keep doing this forever, I'll finally get good at it. But, um, but that's, that's in a sense what happened. So about 20 years of that, uh, I think was, we learned a lot about it. Um, and then uh, coincident with that was as time went by, like in the nineties, you start seeing people, come along like uh, Siegfried Linquist, who was already a well-known um, designer. And he had come to the conclusion that open baffle was a, was a superior approach uh, and laid out a lot of you know, mathematics and, and background about why that is and how they actually operate. So that's helpful also. That gave us some, some more grounded information to follow. Um, so by the 90s, a lot of people were actually working with this, I think. And, uh, but it was, it was, as you well know, it was really a DIY kind of thing for a long time because nobody commercially was making one. There was a couple of things here and there that were odd, you know, but um, never had any, tr you know, traction in the commercial market. Well, it, that strikes me that it, it might have lended itself to, lent itself to some, uh, you know, really great experimentation in that, you know, the DIY community, they're not really worried about commercialization so much right exactly. they're just searching for the best techniques and they've got the freedom to try new stuff without having to worry about you know uh you know supply chains and production and things like that and mm -hmm. then you know just let your imagination go wild and then you know worry about all right let's let's see how we can make the best version of this you know commercially viable yeah that's a great point uh there, there is a lot more freedom to explore uh that whole issue and you guys know this, I'm sure, because that, that uh, Zodal circuit's difficult to build and you have to build it. You can't just put it on a chip or, you know, outsource it. So uh, this, com this commercialization thing and being practical to manufacture is a real big issue. And, uh, and speakers, 
in some ways in particular because they're large and expensive and it, it takes capital equipment and, and a facility to make speakers. You can't make them in your garage in, in any kind of quantity anyway, right? So, uh, so yeah, I, I, and you're right. At that point, I, was, I didn't care about whether it was practical or not. So, in fact, I took a, an engineering prototype to the Rocky Mountain Show in 2006 or something just as, you know, it wasn't for sale. It was saying, hey, this is what I've been working on and uh, it's pretty cool. Um, and that was the reaction was, that's amazing. Can you, <laughs> you know, take this giant, because it was pretty big, you know, can you take this thing and, and put it in a commercial format to where, you know, it's a product and people could buy it and it's reasonably priced. And I did do that. It was called the Emerald Physics CS2. Uh, came out in 2007, I think. But that was very difficult. It looks so simple that you think, well, isn't that it's so easy, you know? But um, that commercialization thing step is difficult, I think, for everyone. Um, so, I mean, long story short, so that so Emerald Physics was became pretty popular, uh, and I I could probably say besides Danny Ritchie. Uh, doing a great job promoting the idea on the DIY side, that that CS2 speaker was really kind of the first, um, you know, production product that you just go out and buy and, and people had heard of and was starting to get some traction. The drawback to it was that uh, it required a DSP controller, signal processor to function, to work for equalization and electronic crossover and so forth. So, but it totally worked. It sounded great. It wasn't that big of a hassle, but it was somewhat of a hassle. Uh, so when I, when I started uh, Spatial, which was actually a room correction software company initially, most people may not know that. Um, when we started getting back into speakers, that was really the, my main goal was to make a plug and play product that did not require any kind of signal processor, external boxes, right? So uh, so that was about 2015 when we introduced the M3 and the M1 and those models, and um, and that really worked, and that that really took off because it was practical for consumers to just buy it and plug it in, use a regular amplifier. You don't need to buy amplify and that kind of thing. So anyway, um, that's the quick background. Sure, sure, yeah. Well, and before we get into some pros and cons, I had a thought when you were talking that you know the, so. Like you said, the Zotal circuit that we make, it's unique and it's hard to build. Um, and so I'm thinking, you know, and so are your speakers, right? You know, so what made it that you went, you were, you gravitated towards this different, probably harder, uh, you know, uh, road than just making traditional box speakers. And it strikes me, you know, when you're talking about that first, you know, system, we all had that first system that we heard that, you know, turned mm -hmm. us onto this. and it included magnapans, right? Which are mm -hmm. not your usual speaker. Anyone that walks into a room with Maggie's knows that they're looking at something different. And I'm thinking like that might've, you know, was that a part of your inspiration? And I guess, you know, further on from that, why do you choose to make these, uh, you know, weird mm -hmm. speakers that don't have a box? Yeah, um, good question. Um, yeah, I think that it's fair to say uh, for me, and I think a lot of other guys that the magnaplaner was a, very important uh, product and product technology uh, because it, I guess if, if nothing else, it, it, it gave you some impression of the scale and of the soundstage, like there's an event, okay, and that there was an immersion 
uh, that you weren't getting from box speakers uh, to where this weird sense where the music is just appears in the room instead of like it's coming out at you. It's sort of like it's there already and you're just, you know, inside that event or you're observing it. But the fact is it's a different feeling. And so it's hard to go back to a box speaker after that because you get more of a directed, you know, thing. And so, so, so I think for me that that's true. I think, um, I wanted to get that sound. I wanted to get that big open sort of, you know, particularly on classical music where you can get that full orchestral sort of scaling. Uh, but I, but I wanted to get, I didn't, there were things about it I didn't like, uh, particularly the earlier magnet pans before they came out with the, the ribbon, which was a great improvement, but you know, it was, you know, it's not very dynamic, slow efficiency, limited bass, uh, scaling of the image, the individual instruments is a problem with any kind of large panel. If you, uh, an individual instrument like a, an acoustic guitar can tend to be out of scale uh, and too large sounding. So, and a lot of people mention that. I've heard plenty of customers tell me that. And it's amazing how many of our customers have owned Magnapans in the past. So it is an important product technology. And um, so that's really what I'm after is to create something that is a hybrid, the best of both worlds. If you could take a product that's really accurate, uh, like a studio monitor from Genelec, for example, that is very, very accurate from a technical standpoint, and it's very dynamic. It's, you know, it's very efficient. You see that in the pro speakers a lot. It's very high efficiency, large drivers, you know, Clips, JBL, some of these large uh, studio monitors, things like that. Uh, but add refinement imaging uh, and have that scaling 3D effect. So that really kind of is a blending of all of these different things. Um, that I think for me, that's really what I've been working on is sort of this comprehensive solution. Um, and I think we have, the market is saying that we've achieved that. So, you know, I feel good about it, but it took forever to figure it out <laughs> right? And, yeah. make, and make it a product, right? So. Sure. Well, and I mean, I, I get asked about your speakers all the time. And, you know, so the question that I get a lot, and frankly, I can't answer. So I'm going to ask it to you. How do they work? How do, mm -hmm. you know, like, you know, people call me up baffled, huh, uh, about how open baffle speakers work. And they say, you know, sure. they just don't really believe it almost. They're like, you know, I, don't, I just, you know, I'm sitting there with them and I can tell them that, look, I hear them every day and they sound fantastic. Um, but, you know, how do you get that the sound, um, the, that full bass, you know, that, that airiness, why does it work? How does it work without mm, getting okay. too technical? Sure. Uh, well, if you, if you look at the different types of speakers, enclosed box, open box, these kind of things. That it really is the simplest form that you could make a speaker. If you took a, a, a panel and you put a, a, a woofer on it, uh, that's what, what makes it open baffle is it's really the proper term is dipolar to where if you put a, a woofer onto this panel, there's a positive pressure wave coming off the front of it when it's in positive phase. So the, you get this, uh, effect where you're pressurizing air in the front of it. And there's a, also at the same time, a negative pressure field behind it. So the back side of it is out of phase with the front side. Uh, that uh, can be good and bad. There's some, like in everything else in physics, there's always trade-offs. And that's really kind of 
maybe the key word in, in this whole discussion about boxes versus open baffle is really managing the trade-offs. And you, if you can minimize or eliminate the negatives, then you have all positives left. And that's really kind of what I think I've done here. Um, so the, um, so what's really happening is super simple. And, the, and that is that there's an interference effect on the edges of the panel on the sides and top and bottom to where the front and the back wave meet and they're out of phase with each other. So they just cancel out. There's just nothing. But that is only in the lower frequency part of the range. It has to be, that's related to the baffle size and the woofer size, so wavelengths. So uh, short wavelengths are not involved in that. But long, you know, if you, you're talking about 10, 20, 30 foot wavelengths, um, they just simply wrap around the cabinet. So they, they, they meet together, they cancel out. And, and that's actually why designers don't, they don't like that. They want to, they say, well, we need to eliminate that problem. We'll put a box uh, on the back of it and we're gonna isolate the, the front and the back so they don't cancel. And you get a lot more bass that way. So it's more efficient, uh, but it doesn't, therein lies the rub. It's like, yeah, but what about the way it sounds and the way it loads the room? That's really the problem. Uh, so in other words, it's, it would be great to eliminate the box if you could get bass out of it and make it work. And so that's really what, that's my job. But the, the most commonly thought of uh, attribute of, of getting rid of the box is the fact that you don't hear the box sound. And that involves a number of things like cabinet vibration, uh, cavity effects, all kinds of different things are going on with the red, because the box is a resonant system, right? So um, you say, well, that'd be great to get rid of all that, but that's actually not the biggest problem. It is a, it is a noticeable audible problem, but the, the biggest problem is the way it, it operates in a room. And this is really the, the overarching key to all this is that boxes don't ideally work very well or maybe even shouldn't be used in rooms that are the kind of size we see in houses. Okay, they're really too small. The boundaries are too close to the speaker. So in an auditorium, this is why pro audio works well with boxes and movie theater speaker design, which is where audio came from. When silent movies went to uh, soundtrack movies, that is audio. That's what we took it from. We were even buying movie-derived, you know, uh, movie theater speakers, right? So, in a if in an auditorium, let's just say, where the it's a huge room, the box problems aren't the way it loads the room is not a problem because the the boundaries are a long distance away from it. But you take that same speaker and you put it in a living room that's 12 feet wide, 15 feet long. Uh, and immediately what happens is it, it creates a real problem because the base is radiating omnidirectionally. So there's energy coming out the sides and the top and bottom, as well as the lengthwise of the room, right? So the problem is in a home, those, that, those uh, perpendicular you know, height and width, those are the ones that are close to the speaker. So you're just dumping energy into resonant storage, you know, uh, room modes in, in the room. Uh, and that's what makes it sound muddy. Uh, and the closer you get to the boundary, the worse it gets. This is why you don't put speakers in the corner, right? Okay, so imagine then going back to the open baffle design where, okay, there's what we have now is more of a, since there's cancellation on around the periphery of it, we're, we're, we have the, what's left over as far as base, which is like figure eight effect. 
So there's a lobe coming out of the front, there's one coming out of the back, and there's nothing coming out of the sides or top. Okay, well, that's perfect because we now don't have energy going out into these, uh, these boundary resonance systems. Um, what we're left with is just the direct sound. This is a generalization. It's not quite that tidy, but, you know, but that's really what's happening is we've created a directional base system, and there really isn't any other practical way to do that uh, and eliminate all this room interaction stuff. Uh, so the smaller the room gets, the more this is an issue, and, and it comes up quite often. It's like, well, if my room is this small, like I took over my kid's bedroom when they moved out, went to college, the room is 10 by 12. Isn't that too small to put a open baffle speaker in? Because they're thinking, you know, they've always heard, hey, magna planers need large rooms. And it, it is very helpful to have a big open space. But as far as this room interaction problem goes, it's actually even more beneficial if the room is 10 or 12 feet, uh, in 10 times 12, because uh, the because the box speaker is going to have that much more problem working in a room that's that small. And this is exactly why, if you go back, I don't even remember, but I'm going to say the 70s, when the BBC in, Eng in, in, um, in England, the whole idea there was don't even try to produce bass. That's where all, you know, the mini monitor uh, stand mount thing came from. And it works. That's a very, that's good advice because if you're in a small room, which in Europe rooms are generally quite small, um, you know, that's, a, that's probably the thing to do is just forget the deep bass altogether and focus on the rest of it. So you don't have all the problems and the droning and because that, that boominess and droning and overlay kind of a effect of the room sound in the bass, that affects the mid range too. So that's one thing that I think, that's really interesting when you switch to open baffle that you, you go, is it just me or is the mid range? There's a lot more information. It's like you just unmask the whole thing. So um, there's, a, a, there's a lot of benefits to, to this approach. Uh, and some of it, you, you, don't, you wouldn't necessarily measure it or know how to measure it, but you can definitely hear it or perceive it, you know? Uh, so that's why I don't think the, your question about you know what kind of room uh, would be appropriate, really any kind of room, because of the advantages of the uh, the way it loads the room. Sure. So you know what I mean. So well, and well, I mean that leads me to you know another question that you know frankly I, I get when I start talking about your speakers with people is what are the you know considerations, right? So you know that frankly that that surprised me that you know if you have a small room, these speakers are actually you know might be a little bit give you a little bit more freedom uh, than you know with a with a box speaker. Um, and I guess you know what you're saying is it, it's because it, you're taking the room out of it a little bit, right? You know, yeah, well, in the base range, yeah, right. Um, that's where the problem is. So, but here's another question that I have for you. What I've heard is that you know the you know open baffle speakers prefer to be away from walls, mm -hmm. right? And mm -hmm. I guess, you know, you can tell yeah. me, but, you know, um, more, you, you want ideally a couple feet from the back wall. Is the back wall the most important in that respect? But um, the, my real question is, you know, what considerations do I have to, you know, if I have a small room, how does that match up with it being away from the walls and, you know, that, that whole thing? So I guess, you know, in a more general level, I'm a customer. I've got a, the typical living room type of room. What considerations do I need to keep in mind um, you know, with the speakers? And what yeah. do you recommend? 
Yeah, it's great. Uh, and that question comes up um, all the time uh, in emails and calls. They say, well, I've heard they have to be way away from the wall. And, you know, of course, that's relative. I mean, way away, two or three feet is, is not that bad. It depends on your room decor and so forth, but your furniture layout. But the, the secret is, is that box speakers, they're the ones, they have to be out away from the wall also, just the, for different reasons. Uh, again, you know, because of the way they have energy uh, in the base coming out omnidirectionally, if you put them up against the wall, whether it's the side wall or the, the front wall in front of you, um, you're going to have problems. Uh, and so, and if you look at most good setups in the media where you see a guy that has a really good pair of box speakers like a Wilson or something like that, they're way away from the wall. There's nobody, you know, it, that doesn't work to put them against the wall, not only for room loading reasons, but also that sense of depth uh, perspective is, is in many ways essentially the same as however far they are away from the wall. So if you pull them out five feet, you tend to have a guaranteed five foot deep soundstage. You can get the perception that it goes through the wall, but so, so it doesn't matter. If you're, if you're gonna have an audiophile installation, it's gonna probably be two or three feet away from the wall, regardless. It's just that it's for different reasons. In the, in the case of the open baffle speaker, it has to do with this cancellation again. We're trying to come out far enough to where we're, we're dealing with the timing of uh, the counter wave behind the speaker in order to produce proper bass level. But the end result's the same. You still have to pull either type out away from the wall. Uh, so that's really not a, not a, an issue. So if a guy's going into it thinking, oh, I'll buy a little box speaker so that I can put them against the wall, that's fine, but that's not an audiophile installation. You're not going to get that realism and depth and soundstage and so forth, generally speaking. So, um, so that's kind of a non-issue, in other words, as far as I'm concerned. Are there any are there any other um, you know misconceptions or, or myths that you hear a lot you know that you're you know you're talking to customers every day and they're asking these same questions and you know you always have to sort of dispel these myths about open baffle speakers um, you know are there any other things that people yeah. commonly think that you know is just not true or maybe you, you need a little bit more nuance? Uh, well, yeah, sure, I think so. The, 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 that the room placement is one at the size of room required, but the other one you hear all the time, which is a normal question is, well, if you can't really normally get bass out of an open baffle speaker, how, you know, how do you do it? In other words, why, you know, <laughs> isn't that really the question? If you're doing it, then great. Uh, and if so, why isn't everyone else and so forth? So that, that, com that comes back down to this question about, how you design an open baffle speaker. It, it's not that easy. It, once you learn how to do it, it's not that hard. But the key to it is that, again, when you, let's say that we're, you and I are going to make a design a speaker for LTA. You're going to come out with your own speaker. It's a box speaker, stand mount two-way. And what, what we would do, we would get in these catalogs and look at uh, drivers that are available, that are high quality, like a ScanSpeak or whatever. And those drivers, and there's many, many of them, you know, catalogs full of them, the, par the, the parameters that they operate under, the, you know, the, the suspension design and all that are designed for either sealed box or, or vented base reflex boxes. Uh, and so that's where a lot of the mythology comes from and the mistakes when, when guys are experimenting. If you buy a woofer like that and you put it in an open baffle design, you won't really get any base to speak of. So 
uh, so that's a that's a given if you get into this area is you have to either design your own woofer or find one that's designed for dipole operation uh, because otherwise because it's not only a matter of getting the base level high enough but it's also has to do with the ability to control its motion because in this case there's no uh, pressure box you know be you know uh, behind it to con sort of damp the and control the motion. It's on its own. So it has a lot of work to do. It has to self-center properly and so forth. So it, they tend to have a stiffer uh, suspension. It's a, a different kind of woofer setup. It, it'll look the same on the outside, but uh, the parameters are different. So, and that's one of the things we did uh, in the spatial product line. We we started designing our own drivers so that we could optimize the performance. And then we've improved that over time. Um, so if you, if you look at the M3, I think when you mentioned, when you first came to LTA, you had a pair of the M3 triodes, I believe. That's right. And that was a pretty cool speaker. Uh, but we came from that time, we came so far in woofer development that the new single woofer M5 has better bass and more bass than the twin 15 inch woofer model that you saw there. Um, and, and you've had the new M3 Sapphire at the shop and you can probably attest to the, the base is mind boggling. It's not just, oh, it's good. I, you know, it's good. It's open baffle. It's like better than most box speakers in terms of output and so forth. Um, so I think we've really, so that gets back to this thing about you just keep at it. You just keep working and working on testing and engineering and, and you just move forward. Um, but um, that's the biggest myth is open baffle speakers don't have bass. Well, listen to these and you'll, you know, and same thing. There's a, there's a brand called Pure Audio Project uh, from Israel. They figured it out also. Great sounding speaker. Uh, and it, you listen to it, and you go, that's got amazing bass. And so it's really a matter of design and engineering uh, to overcome these um, inherent sort of limitations of not having a, a box. Well, and, and maybe that's it, right? Like you mentioned, you know, Pure Audio Project and then there's Spatial. Those are really the two, only two open baffle speaker companies that I can name off the top of my head. And, you know, so it strikes me that most people would, if they've heard open baffle speakers at all, um, you know, they've probably, they, they, they might've heard the most from a DIY uh, in a DIY situation yeah. and yeah. you know who knows what the <clears throat> what that particular person is doing are they just buying these off-the-shelf shelf drivers probably um, and then you know is are they buying the right one and so uh, you know once they get into something that's been you know fully designed like yours uh, or or the priority project ones then you know it's then they, then you start to see what the the true um, you know potential is yeah that's that's actually a good point I hadn't thought of is that if you, if a lot of the experiences people have had around open baffle were in the DIY world, like your, you know, your buddy built a pair of open baffle speakers, you might have a negative uh, viewpoint of them because they're not commercially developed and, uh, you know, supposedly highly engineered. So, um, but yeah, I mean, I think if you lined up 10 or 20 people and they listened to a pure audio project or a spatial speaker, every single person would say, I can't believe you're getting that kind of base out of it. So it's not, um, it, it's, it's not a contestable thing at this point. It's no longer a point where you go, I, you know, you would argue about anymore. So. 
Yeah, I, there was actually a recent conversation I had with a customer who was, you know, a DIY person who was, you know, had been on the journey of building his own uh, open baffle speakers for a while, had apparently come to maybe Florida or Capital Audio Fest and heard yours. And he was saying, I'm not sure I'm going to continue to build these speakers anymore because, you know, I think he was searching for that solution to the problems they didn't heard in other DIY speakers. And then he heard yours and he's like, you know, well, that does everything I needed to do. So why am I going to build my own? Yeah. Well, we encourage people to build their own, anything, amps, uh, speakers, everything, because that's a good, it's fun and you learn that way and so forth. But um, to the, you know, at the stage that at least we're at, I don't know about Pure Audio Projects internally, but Spatial is, is uh, you know, we've now brought everything in-house. So we do, we have our own machinery. Uh, we, we produce all the parts except for the drivers. Um, so part of the idea of that is efficiencies um, and economies of scale. So we, if we make a lot of speakers, we can uh, keep the price pretty low like, like it is now particularly selling factory direct and it makes it, it yeah it makes it kind of crazy to say yeah, I'm just going to do this myself you can but you very unlikely that you could match the performance now if you buy a, a kit that's engineered like the GR research then you that would work but doing it on your own is, is kind of very very difficult although I still encourage people to do it as a learning uh, you know process so Sure. Well, on that, do you have any, I mean, because there are a lot of DIYers out there, certainly in the DC community, that's where Capital Audio Fest started, you know, a ton of DIY people. And then I think I, for some reason, you know, open baffle speakers just uh, appeal to DIYers. Um, mm -hmm. uh, I'm not sure why, uh, but do you have any, you know, tips for people outside of, you know, dipole driver? I think we already hit on, you know, any other tips that, you know, are maybe simple, relatively cheap that people can do to improve their DIY projects, you know, until of course they decide to just buy a pair of spacious. <laughs> yeah, just buy our speakers. Um, <laughs> right. That's the easiest thing to Probably do. Probably once, right? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, there probably would be an endless number of little things I might recommend depending on the design of that they're working with. But for the most part, what again, what makes it difficult is that if you're a DIYer, what woofer are you going to buy? Because you you're not designing your own. And there are solutions to that. Uh, there are a couple of companies that make ready-made dipole woofers. But you'd have to know what those are, how to use them. Uh, there's a lot more involved than it appears just because it's so simple looking that you make, you overlook a lot of, uh, potentially a lot of technical details because it's like, how hard could this be? And then you find out, well, you can get pretty good sound, but it's like anything else. Box speakers are actually the same way. If you try to build your own, you can get pretty good results out of it, but you can't necessarily compete with someone that really knows what they're doing and already has economies of scale and so forth, you know, and production capability that know how to make a, assemble a product. And it can end up costing you more to go down to a cabinet shop and get the box made, for example. Sure. Sure. Well, another question that comes to mind is, you know, so you, you mentioned early on that part of your inspiration uh, to start spatial was getting rid of the, you know, the, the, the separate DSP situation. Um, and, but then you started spatial as a, as a software company, um, you know, so there's, there's something in, in there, but now, so you have your M, M line, uh, and that is a completely passive speaker. And then you have your X line, which has, uh, it's no DSP, right? But it's a powered sub. 
Um, so yeah. why did you go with that? You know, talk to me about the differences mm -hmm. in, in the M and the X and why I would maybe choose one versus the other. Um, you know, what's going on? Yeah, yeah, the, good question. It's actually the, the answer is, is simpler than you would think. And it, it, it's simply, if you look at all of our products, they're relatively small, okay? Uh, compared to a lot of what we've seen in, in uh, open baffle speakers. Um, if, if I wanna keep this form factor of about no more than 48 inches tall, then in order to go from a two-way to a three-way to try to optimize mid-range performance, I don't have room for enough base drivers, okay? So in other words, if I took an M3 that has two 15-inch woofers, which is like the proper setup, and then made it a three-way, it would get, I can do that, no problem, but it starts getting pretty large. And so the way, one way around that, and what I think is an excellent um, alternative is to have the one specially designed woofer that is directly powered and controlled by just, it is DSP controlled, but just low frequency. So your normal amplifier doesn't, you know, is not involved in that. So, um, so you just, these issues about, oh, I can hear DSP or whatever, that's not, doesn't come into play if it's just a subwoofer. So, so going to an active subwoofer allows me to have the output of the two passive uh, 15s um, and then keep that, the, the overall baffle size small. That's the reason for it. Gotcha. Uh, that brings to mind another question about, so we talked a lot about how it sounds and choosing the right drivers and you know things like that. Your speakers look great. Uh, and they obviously look different than, you know, a DIY and, and, and certainly mm -hmm. Pure Audio Project. What's that process like? How do you, how do you design the speakers from a visual perspective? And, and what part, you know, how does that interact or not with the, the sonic side? Yeah, well, I think I'm a, I'm a, you may be the same way, but I'm kind of a, a modern furniture nut, um, you know, and, and uh, not just modern in that, in a, that sense, but, um, going all the way back to just Bauhaus type sensibilities in industrial design where things are plainer, they're clean, they don't, they're not trendy to where they get, you know, they look dated. Uh, that's just the way I have always been anyway. And so Open Baffle lends itself to, to that quite nicely because it, it, you know, as you can look at our product and see that uh, it, it just, you know, makes sense to make it a plainer looking product. But, um, but yeah, I think we, I don't know this, but I, I feel like we're more, in many ways, more sensitive to the styling side of it and the industrial design side than a lot of other companies. A lot of uh, companies, as you probably know, in, in our industry, they're very, very small. So there may be, in, in many cases, the owner of the company uh, is an engineer and he also does all of the design work. Um, the engineering design in terms of the mechanical, electrical, but also the styling. Uh, and that's where you can run into a problem because as you get into larger companies, they have people spe you know, specifically to do that. They have industrial designers and people that understand color and materials and the way things look and all that. And you can't really do that. In, you don't see that very often in small companies. So one option is you outsource it like you guys did with Fern and Roby. That's a perfect example, and that chassis looks amazing, right? Uh, and Chris, Christopher knows what he's doing. That's his profession, so you expect a high level of execution on, say, the design of that, that Z10 chassis. 
Uh, we've done the same thing for years. There's an industrial designer that lives in Salt Lake named David Evett, who's very good uh, and has done a lot of really cool, you know, advanced type of uh, industrial design work. So we've been using him uh, on an outsource basis for a long time, and our whole process is pretty clo closely coupled with him because if he's doing the CAD design for the chassis to, in order to do the styling, well, you're already working on the mechanics anyway at that point. I mean, you're, it's all the same thing. Uh, so when you get that developed, that you're done, that is the chassis. So then you obviously test it and work with it after that with prototypes. But, but yeah, I'd say we, we outsource it. But over time though, we have done more in-house. I do some of the styling stuff myself now. Um, it's not my strong area, but I'm not that bad at it. I've at least, you know, over more recent, uh, years I've learned a lot and it's something I enjoy so I'd like to to do some of our own styling ourselves in-house but anyway so we're very similar to you so I think that's the smart thing to do if you're a smaller company find a really good design house this is why Ferrari and Aston Martin one of the reasons they they became successful is they they didn't try to style the car themselves they went out and hired a professional uh, car design house like Pininfarina and said, here, we'll pay you guys. You come up with a, an amazing car. If a Ferrari looked like a, a 1970 Dodge Polaris or something, it wouldn't be a brand. See, so this is a big deal, getting the industrial design right. And, uh, and Apple showed us more than anybody how that, what that's about. You know, if products look amazing and they're beautifully crafted, then that creates a desire to own them. And so if you just stick with the engineering side and you, it may be the best sounding amp in the world, but if you look at it and you don't want to buy it, you don't want to own it, then what's the point of, uh, of it? See, so, so we think the speakers need to look really good, but that is subjective because it is with speakers, it starts getting more into kind of the furniture realm because it's a, it's a large object and it gets difficult. But um, one of the things that feedback we get quite commonly is that the, when they buy the speakers, they've never heard them or seen them because we sell factory direct, but they've heard about them, right? So all they've really seen is the frontal image, which is fairly large. I mean, it's 18 inches wide, right? But when they get them, they realize, wow, this thinness factor is huge. And when the speaker's only a couple of inches deep, it just looks much smaller once you put it in the room, uh, like magna planers or something. Of course, they're tall, but you know, this, the thin thing is really a huge advantage for us, I think. Yeah, it, they take up somehow some less mental space in the room yeah. because they they don't have that big box. And yeah, I, I love the design. I think I mean the, the interesting thing about the design of your speakers is that you know they are they fit in any decor, right? You know, so I've mm -hmm. seen them in extremely modern settings, you know, homes, mm -hmm. um, and then you know, but they would fit in fine. And that's why I think you know partly I think they're great for you know. Uh, you know, condos and, you know, sort of the, the younger set, I'll include myself in that. Uh, mm -hmm. And, um, but then they you're, would fit you're in. You're not that young. No, I'm not. I got some gray. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're only like, you know, 107 yourself. You I know. know so yeah, I'm just yeah, you, you look, you look pretty good, uh, you know, too. Um, so, but they also fit in, in a, in a, in a traditional design. Um, yeah. you know, they're sort of chameleons in that way. And I couldn't agree with you more about the, the aesthetics in general in audio. Uh, you know, I, there's some people I think that, you know, are in, you know, a very small percentage of people in audio that are, I don't care what it looks like. 
it, mm -hmm. it just, you know, just tell me what it sounds like. But, you know, what I bring up cars all the time when I'm talking to customers and I say, you'd never heard of Porsche or Ferrari if they look like crap. You know, mm -hmm. it, it is, it's not, we make our buying decisions, uh, you know, we put things in our home, not just for a single reason. And like you said, we are putting these in our homes, um, you know, and they are furniture and ideally they're furniture that we keep for years and years and years. And so it's got to tick more than one box. It can't just sound good. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think um, that's why designing, having a simplicity is a real advantage uh, in, in the look of the product. If, if it's adorned with a lot of stuff, it'll tend to be dated looking after a while. So if you can stick with clean lines and not put a lot of adornments on it, it's, it's a real advantage. Um, yeah, and the products themselves are actually quite modern, so it, it makes you look quite modern. So it's interesting. I, I agree with you. I've seen a lot of picture, you know, installations, that, pictures that have been sent in where the room is not particularly modern and they still look good. So I think, I think that clean lines thing is what it's about. For sure. Well, Clayton, is there anything else that you uh, you want to talk about? Anything you know in the in the world or the industry? I mean, we're all obviously we're here in our homes uh, because of, of the, the the virus. But um, you know, anything else you know going on at the company? Well, let me mention one other thing about because it relates to your product. Um, one of the things that I, I worked in the in the professional pro audio industry for for some time, like seven years or something like that. And one of the things that I learned right off um, that I wasn't really expecting, but it brought me back to the original, like when I was a kid with the Altex and all that, is that high efficiency is really important uh, in terms of sounding real. Um, and that's not something you, you can't measure the sound of what sounds real, but you can, you know, most people have heard a pair of like clips horns or something and think, wow, that's so dynamic and so alive. And that's really directly related to this efficiency question. So uh, since that's been an important parameter, we've been doing that all along, even back in the early days. We've been design using high efficiency drivers, pro drivers, that sort of thing. Um, but one of the nice side benefits is, is, is the application side of it, that we can take a product like the Z10 which is a 12 watt amplifier, which is an amazing sounding amplifier, but it is only 12 watts. And so here's a, here's a speaker that you can uh, put, you know, use that kind of amplifier with. You can use anything you want, basically. Uh, so I think that's pretty cool too. Um, and that freedom to choose the amp and get the sound you want. And, the, and many of the best sounding amps are, are small, uh, low powered like that Z10. So, that's all I was going to say is I think that's another benefit. That's one of the reasons that we have a, a relationship where we go to shows together because your products drive our speaker real well. It's a good matchup. Indeed. And, you know, give us all the credit. The, the Z10 is 13 watts oh, into yeah, the, the M3, you know, you know, the 12 <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a four 13. ohms. It's, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's yeah. all of 13, not 12. Um, all right, Clayton. Well, this has been fun. I appreciate it. Uh, and uh, we'll talk soon, man. Okay. Good to see you again. We'll talk yeah. soon. Great. Bye-bye.